Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Before we get started, I want to dismiss all of our junior Oaks. So if you are one of our kindergarten through fifth graders and you're gonna be in our junior Oaks class today, our volunteers are in orange shirts in the back of the room. Parents, you can walk them back there. Uh, kids, you can go. You guys will join us back in the room uh, for the Lord's Supper, and then we will, we will worship in song a little bit more. Now, if you have uh, your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and find Romans chapter 7. Uh, and as you turn there, I want to make uh, just a quick announcement. Not this week, but next week, all of our missional community groups are starting back. Uh, so yeah, it's super exciting. Uh, you know that this year we have focused on being better together as a church family, and one of the ways that uh, we live that out is not only in rows in this room, but in circles, in living rooms, where uh, we get to know others and um, others get to know us, so we can live the Christian life alongside one another. So real quick, if you are one of our MC leaders or co-leaders, or you are an apprentice in an MC, can you raise your hand real quick? Yep. Okay, so you guys see some hands around the room. If you are not in a missional community group, talk to one of those people or scan that QR code in your worship guide and you can click on sign up for an MC group and follow that link and we'll make sure that we get you connected into one of those. Now, as we look at Romans chapter 7, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that uh, is often a passage that's really confusing for a lot of people. Honestly, the end of Romans 7 is reminiscent of a classic book that's entitled The Story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You're probably familiar with it. We're all familiar with it. None of us have read it. But it's written by this guy named Robert Louis Stevenson. And the interesting thing about the author is that he was a believer. Many people believe that this book, this novel that he wrote, was actually inspired by his life as a Christian. And even the passage that we find in Romans chapter 7. Because in the story, what you find is that there is this scientist, a, a pretty upstanding guy named Dr. Jekyll. And yet he was so frustrated and annoyed that there were still these temptations within him to do the wrong thing, to do bad things. And so he concocts a potion that will somehow separate these two personas that are within him. And, and he says, all the wicked parts of me, I'm just going to make them come out at night because that's just only a small part of me. And so people will only interact with the upstanding good part of me. And so there's Dr. Jekyll during the day, and then just kind of this, you know, bad part of him that comes out at night named Mr. Hyde. And yet what happens is he underestimates the evil within him. There's this moment in the story where he kind of comes to himself and says, I realize that the evil within me is tenfold times worse than I thought it was. He has these two intentions living within his own skin. Uh, during the day, he, he wants to do what is right, and yet what he finds is that that evil persona is constantly fighting against who he is, that it begins to, to lash out, to do things that he would have never dreamed were possible. That there's this war within him for righteousness and wickedness. This war within his own skin raging that demands evil and yet desires good. And yet what we find is that that is not so different from our Christian experience. In Romans 7, the apostle Paul, as godly as he was, is going to say, sometimes I want to do the right thing. And yet it's like the temptation to sin is just right there. Sometimes I want to do the right thing. 
And it's almost like I don't have the ability to carry it out. I want to glorify God. And then I find myself regretting what I have done because it's the very thing that doesn't please God at all. And what we find in our Christian experience is that that characterizes a lot of us. Maybe even this morning, we find ourselves so consistently inconsistent when it comes to our pursuit of God. We desire God's glory and yet find ourselves often committing sin, the very thing that he hates. It's not uncommon for the Christian father to read Bible stories to his children and then in a moment of of anger lash out and use that same voice to yell at his children when they disobey. It's not uncommon for a Christian employee to be in this room sitting right here right now singing those songs and saying, my worth is found completely in Christ and what the Lamb of God has done for me. And yet whenever you're passed over for that promotion at work or someone else gets the bonus you think you deserve, you begin to spiral out of control and don't know who you are. It's not uncommon for the Christian to say, God provides everything that I need. And yet whenever you're scrolling through Instagram and you're like, what is that, like their fifth vacation this year? In this moment of jealousy, overcomes you. It's not uncommon to be a student. Knowing that God is sovereign, God is completely in control of your entire life, and yet you find yourself unable to sleep at night because you want to get your five-year plan just right. Every Christian knows that moment when you're eager to serve someone else. You're, you're so selfless. And then the next day, that text message that you get from a friend that needs help just seems like an inconvenience, and you don't want to answer. Uh, There are moments in your Christian life in which going to a worship gathering or opening up your Bible to read or spending time in prayer seems life-giving and exhilarating. And other times, they just feel like a chore, a box to simply check off a list. Why is that? Romans 7 is written for the Christian that asks, why? Why do I do this? Why am I so hot and cold? Why is my heart so fickle? Well, Paul is going to answer that question. It's because there is an ongoing war against sin within you. But take heart, Christ has already won that war. There is a war that rages within you. Don't let that surprise you. But Christ has already won that war. That's going to be the great hope that we find in Romans chapter 7. Now, if you're new to the book of Romans, you should know that the apostle Paul is a missionary. He's writing this letter to the church that is in Rome, and he is preparing his way for a visit. The first five chapters of the book of Romans is all about what Christ has done to declare us righteous. That's justification. That is our positional holiness. When God looks at you, if you have trusted in Christ, completely based upon faith, upon belief alone, you are righteous in the eyes of God. That is positional holiness. And yet, there's also a progressive nature to your holiness. That's called sanctification. In Romans 6 through 8, Paul is talking about sanctification, this gradual, often slow process of applying the holiness that has already been declared true of us into our lives to actually becoming holy. And we find ourselves right here in the middle of Romans 7 as Paul is talking about that. Here are a few quotes that we'll find in Romans chapter 7 today. If you have God's Word in front of you, you can look at these real quick. Verse 15, Paul says, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Verse 18, Paul says, I I want to do the right thing, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Verse 21, when I want to do the right thing, 
It's almost like a law. The temptation to do the wrong thing is always right there. And as I was reading Romans 7 this week, there were moments that I was like, Did, has Paul overheard my prayers? Did he like steal these quotes from journal entries I've had in the past? Maybe you feel the exact same way. And that's good news because I think Romans 7 is able to meet you right where you're at. I think some of you come in this morning and perhaps you're discouraged in your current battle with sin because you've memorized passages of scripture and you've enlisted accountability partners and you've listened to sermons and you know what to do and yet you find yourself still committing sin and, and, and you're just discouraged. When that's your experience, you're, you're burdened by guilt. And the last thing that you want to do is pursue God because you don't feel like you are able. So this is a great sermon of encouragement for those who are discouraged. I, th I think some Christians are surprised whenever they still find themselves struggling with sin. Maybe you're a new Christian and you're like, okay, I, I recognize that I was a sinner before I became a follower of Jesus. And I thought that whenever I became a follower of Jesus, that all of these temptations to sin would just completely go away. And what a rude awakening you've experienced that you find that not only are there still temptations to sin, even though you have a new heart, but there are actually some temptations that have come alive now that you know God's law and actually desire to do the right thing. If you're surprised by the fact that you still struggle with sin, if you're sitting here thinking, uh, why, why do I have such great temptation to sin in my life? I want you to know that you aren't a bad Christian. You're a normal one. If Paul is, is struggling with this in Romans 7, then don't be surprised if you struggle too. Some of you might be apathetic. You just kind of shrug your spiritual shoulders and say, okay, I can't change. I might as well throw in the towel. Uh, this is whenever discouragement not only takes up residence in your heart, but all of its friends make your heart its home. And you're just kind of like, ah, there's, you know, I've tried to change. I've done everything I can. There's no use in trying. But what if the brick wall that you feel trapped behind in your sin is actually a doorway into God's grace, that you would know him deeper that you would trust him deeper, that you would find even in your struggle with sin that God is more gracious than you thought he was. Some of you are isolated in your struggle. This can happen for a number of reasons. Maybe you just kind of, you know, think everybody around me is so much better off than I am. Everybody around me, they, they don't struggle with this. So I don't want to open up to others about my struggle with sin. Maybe you pridefully don't think that you need anybody else's help. Uh, maybe, maybe you're just kind of tricked into believing that the church is someplace where perfect people are. So if you opened up about your struggle with sin, then maybe you would lose all of your Christian friends. But I think this is a good time to be reminded that the church is not a beauty pageant for people that have their act together, but it's a hospital for people who need healing. So don't stay isolated in your struggle with sin. You see, my desire is that as we look at this passage, you would be hopeful and confident that Christ has not only forgiven your past sin and broken the power of sin over you, but that he has the ability to free you from the current presence of sin. And that even in your struggle with sin, that you would see that Christ is sufficient to change you, to draw you near. If you're discouraged, I want you to understand that there isn't a single sin that you have committed this week that isn't forgiven by God if you have trusted in Christ. If you come in this morning and you're surprised by your sin, I hope that you understand that God 
isn't surprised by your sin, but in fact that he orchestrated your sanctification in such a way that you would be constantly dependent upon him. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God just instantly make me perfect the moment that he saved me? Is it because he wanted you to constantly come to him to see that you do have an advocate with the Father who is Christ? Some of you, you might be apathetic. Could it be that your apathy is the result of overestimating your own ability to obey and underestimating the ability of God to work in you? I think it could be. Maybe you're isolated. Do you need to see that you are not alone in your struggle, but this is the normal experience of the Christian life, that you would come alongside others, that you would live out the reality of not only belonging to Christ, but belonging to a church in which there's a community of believers who can walk with you through this. My desire is that as we continue to look at Romans 7, you would be hopeful and confident. So we're going to look at four facts that we see in Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. And I want to begin by reading Romans 7, 13. Paul asked, did that which is good, what's he talking about? What is good? He's talking about the commands of God, the commands from the Old Testament, the commands of the Ten Commandments. He said right there in verse 12 before this that the commands of God are holy, righteous, and good. And so he's continuing that argument. He says, did that which is good, the commands of God, then bring death to me? Are they responsible for my spiritual death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here we see the first fact in Romans 7, 13 through 25. It is this, that every person faces the enemy of sin. So don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Every person faces the enemy of sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, the law is good. And yet, as we saw last week, he didn't know how sinful he was until he encountered the law on a heart level, until he read the command, thou shalt not covet, and said, you know, I often want things that that God hasn't given me, and that jealousy, that discontentment has revealed how sinful I am before a holy God. Now, does that mean that the law is bad because it exposed us sin? No. It, It was simply discovering and revealing that he was spiritually dead. He says that he realizes he was exceedingly sinful. Imagine for a moment that an EMT gets called to to make a a home visit where someone just called 911 and said, I'm having a heart attack right now, like send someone. So the EMT gets there, rushes into the house, sees a person laying on the floor, puts his hand on their pulse and find that there's no beating heart. Does the EMT that walked into the room, that put his hand on that person's neck, is he charged then with murder? No. He's not responsible for that person's death. He simply discovered, revealed that that person was dead. Well, Paul is saying here, the law did not kill me. No, the law simply showed that I was spiritually dead. It revealed just how dead I was, that if you were to put your hand on my spiritual pulse, you would find that there is no beating heart. And that shows just how bad sin is. Sin isn't simply a mistake where we need to do some behavior modification and fix ourselves. Sin sin isn't simply misinformation where we just need to learn a few facts to fix ourselves. No, sin is us being spiritually dead and only God can make us alive. 
Only Christ can save us from our sin. Our sin is so bad that it will either be paid for through the blood of Christ or, or a person will be sentenced to eternal hell. Sin is bad. And so Paul says here that sin was shown to be sin through the commandment so that it might become sinful beyond measure. Say, so whenever I came in contact with the commands, I realized there was no saving myself. And yet there's a little hope here for you and I. If you experience discomfort or pain or conviction from sin, that is evidence that God is working. There is something that God is doing to show you that you are not sufficient in yourself, to draw you near to Him. And so welcome that pain from sin, that it would drive you to the Lord. The second fact that I want you to see is that there is a spiritual war within you. There's a spiritual war within you. See, there are, there's a shift in verses 14 through 20. And you'll read this. Paul begins to use different verbs. He says, I am, I do, I do not do. He is now speaking in the present tense, which is interesting because if you remember in verses 7 through 12, Paul is using all past tense. He's talking about his, his life before he knew Christ, his experience of conviction under the weight of the law. And he's speaking in past tense nine times in verses 7 through 13 does he use past tense verbs. And yet in verses 13 through 25, he's going to speak in the present tense. 26 times he references his present experience in his battle with sin. Paul is acknowledging that the Christian faces a battle within against sin and the desires of the Holy Spirit. So take a deep breath if you're in a struggle with sin. If you fight a daily battle with sin, it should comfort you that Paul the apostle faced that same battle. Don't let that discourage you. Let that comfort you that there is actually hope. This, can, this part of this passage, as dark as this chapter is, is going to make what we find in Romans 8 just immeasurably beautiful. I also want you to hear Paul's struggle and understand that your fellow brothers and sisters are facing this same struggle. Be patient with people. Be gracious to people. Understand that no one graduates from this battle with sin, and this war will not be over until we see Christ face to face and we're completely glorified. Now, not everyone takes this passage and, and says, well, this is about Paul's present experience as a Christian. I think because of all of the present tense verbs and the ways that he says I again and again, that, that makes the most sense. Some people say, well, no, this is still Paul talking about his experience before he was a Christian. Some people say, well, no, Paul is speaking as someone who is a Christian, but this is just kind of like him going really wayward, almost a period of being backslidden or something. Maybe he's talking about like a rhetorical person in that way, but this is not his current present experience. And yet I think, one, it's the most traditional interpretation of this passage. But as you read through it, I believe that what we are seeing is Paul's firsthand experience as godly as he was I think we're seeing his difficult battle with sin that made him completely dependent upon God's grace and continued to drive him in his weakness to trust in God. Isn't that your experience as a Christian? 
I mean, doesn't this passage resonate with you because you feel like you could insert your own name where he writes his own? As a Christian, you live between the now of your salvation and the not yet of your glorification. That's where sanctification is, right? You've been declared righteous. One day in Christ's presence, you'll be presence, you'll be completely freed from sin, made new, and will not struggle with sin anymore. But right now, you live on a battlefield where there is a war, a war that rages within you. You're in between the now and the not yet. The power of sin is broken over you, but the presence of sin is still daily being uprooted from your life through the power of the Spirit. Now, because this is true, this means that you don't have to pretend like you are perfect, that you can admit your need for God. We are all in this struggle together. This also means that you can take ownership of your sin. I think oftentimes we don't experience the depth of God's grace and the breadth of his mercy toward sinners still in progress. We don't truly know who God is and just how kind and merciful he is because we often downplay our sin. We blame shift our sin. We say things like, well, I was just having a bad day or they caught me at the wrong time. Instead of saying, no, I'm a person who needs God's grace because I am naturally angry in my sin. You see, we won't understand the depth of God's grace and the power of the spirit at work within us unless we truly own our sin, name it and repent of it before a holy God. So whenever Paul uses words like I when he talks about his present struggle with sin, it gives us great opportunity to admit our sin before a holy God and rely on the depth of his grace. In verse 14, Paul continues to echo what we saw from last week. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. So the law was produced by the Holy Spirit. So the law is good. The law came from God, which means that the law is good. But for me, I'm sold under flesh. I was born into this world a sinner. My natural desires are all messed up. The compass of my heart always points south, not north, apart from God. And so he says, I was sold under sin. Although he's freed from sin's power, he often still lives like sin is his master. Then Paul kind of gives us a look underneath the hood of his own heart in verses 16 through 18. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. See, Paul says that he delights in the law of God. He wants to do what is right, He doesn't want to do what is evil. This is one of the reasons that whenever I come to the interpretation of this passage, I say that Paul is clearly a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit whenever he is writing these words. Because a non-Christian doesn't desire to do the law of God. They might say, well, no, I don't want to kill people because I don't want to go to jail. But but their ultimate desire isn't for the glory of God, for the things of God to please God. And yet Paul here is saying, I don't understand my actions, right? I can't fully comprehend how deep my sin runs and why I always do the things that I don't want to do. But here's what I do know in verse 16, that I agree with the law, that it is good. The things that God teaches and commands, those are good things. And yet I often do the wrong thing. This is a a comfort for you 
if, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I genuinely want to do what glorifies God. If you're saying, I want to please God in my heart. Sometimes I don't do the right things. I mean, there, there are times, maybe you're saying this week that I, I knew what to do and didn't do the right thing. How can I know if, if God is truly at work within me? Well, what are your desires? What do you want? Do you delight in God's law? Could, could what is said of the man in Psalm 1 be said of you? You delight in the law of God. You meditate on it day and night. That you'd be like a tree planted by streams of water, unable to be moved, bearing fruit. Is that, is that what you want for your life? Well, then let that be a comfort to you. That, that if you truly love God's law and God is at work within you, that you will not be satisfied, that you would be internally frustrated whenever you find yourself doing what goes against God's commands. I think we all love that moment in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son, where the son looks and he locks eyes with his father. And the father looks at the wayward son and begins to run toward him as fast as he can, willing to disgrace himself as a Jewish man, breaking all social customs so that he could welcome this son that betrayed him back home. And yet, I believe the true moment of change in that story is whenever the prodigal son is kneeled before a trough, eating next to pigs, shoveling a slop in his mouth because of the pain in his stomach is so deep, he just wants something to fill the void. And there is a moment in which his heart is illuminated, in which something clicks in his mind and says, I know who my father is. And he desires better for me than the way that I am living right now. If he saw where I was, he would not leave me in this slop. If I can even go and be one of, us, one of his servants in his house, I will run back home. So what does he do? He runs home and is welcomed by the father. See, whenever the Christian finds themselves in sin, it's that same moment in which you look down at the trough in front of you and you say, this is not what God desires for me. God has better for me. God has redeemed me for more than this. The blood of Christ was not shed for me that I would continue to live in the bondage of sin. This is not who I am. Let us run, energized by the grace of God, the depth of our sin, realizing we couldn't save ourselves and don't deserve his grace to the throne of God, falling on our knees before his mercy, knowing that our father will always receive us. Because Christ has shed his blood for us. Paul's saying, I often do what I don't want to do, but I delight in God's law. That's ultimately my desire, and that should be the same for every Christian. Now, he admits in, in verse 18, I desire to, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want, I want each of us to understand this. Because I think oftentimes we overestimate our ability to do the right thing. So we feel guilt from sin and then we say, okay, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna double down my effort. I'm gonna try harder. I'm not gonna do this again, right? That's, you know, the millionth time I've said the last time, but this, mean, this time I mean that that was really the last time. Like, you know, no more. I'm not gonna talk to people like that. I'm not gonna lie whenever people ask me that question. I'm done with that. So you try really hard and guess what? You do it again, why? Because 
you don't realize you don't have the ability to carry out the good desire that's within you. And Paul has just said that. Paul's just told you that. Don't let that surprise you. And yet, whenever Paul in Romans 1 is trying to describe the power of God, you know where he says it can be found? In the gospel. In the gospel that now resides within you. Paul could have talked about the power of God made known through shooting stars and erupting volcanoes. And you know where he wants to describe the power of God to you? In the power of God seeking out sinners that are hellbound, delivering them from the domain of darkness into marvelous light, placing the Holy Spirit within them that now changes the entire trajectory of their life. That's in you. Which is why it is good news whenever we read Philippians 2 and God says, through the pen of Paul, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You don't want to do God's will sometimes? Guess what? God wills within you. You don't have the ability to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to apply all the knowledge that you know into your sanctification? Guess what? It is God who works within you. Which is why Jesus said in John 15, four through five, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God has structured your relationship in such a way that you would be constantly dependent upon his work within you. So don't try to just muster up your own strength and white-knuckle obedience. Follow, follow the Lord. Seek to please Him. Paul humbly admits that you have no ability to do this. In your own strength, you cannot be a faithful spouse or a patient parent. You can't be a selfless friend. You can't be a bold missionary or a leader that loves others more than yourself, but in Christ you can. Yes, there is a war that rages within you, but Christ has already won that war. So because of Christ, obedience is possible, but sin still puts up a fight. In verse 19, Paul says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It breaks his heart that he still sins against God. Does it break your heart? not just because you broke a streak of obedience, not just because it could damage your credibility or you know, make things a little tense at home. Do you hate sin because God hates sin? Verse 20, Paul says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now what's going on here? Paul's saying the same thing he said in verse 17. It's not, it's not me that does this, does this. It's sin that dwells within me that does this. Is he like a teenage kid that gets pulled over for speeding and then the officer comes to his window and he says, sorry, officer, I wasn't doing 15 over, the car was, right? He's like totally just kind of yeah, abdicating responsibility here. Is that what is going on? No, at first glance, it could seem like that. It's like, is he having some kind of like, you know, moment where he's just kind of, trying to shove sin off to the side? No. What he's saying is, it's, it's no longer I who do this, but sin that does, does this within me because I am now united to Christ. And yes, in my sinful flesh, there is still sin at work within me. And sometimes I let it get the best of me. And sometimes I give in. But that is not ultimately who I am because I'm a new creation in Christ. And that sin no longer defines me in such a way that he can say, 
My identity is so rooted in Christ that whenever I sin, that's not truly who I am. Is he still responsible? Yes. But at the end of the day, he is not the sum of his sins. And some of you need to be reminded of that. You are not an alcoholic. You are a child of Christ, trusting in God to be freed from an addiction that has won again and again over you. That you are not ultimately a people pleaser or a failure. That because you have trusted in Christ, you are a child of God that is learning day after day to find your worth in what God has declared about you and not what other people have said about you. Your identity is in Christ. And sin will no longer be your master and you will no longer be its slave because Christ has won this war. Fact number three, your indwelling sin actively opposes the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons that the Christian life is so hard. Your indwelling sin actively opposes the Holy Spirit. Once again, Paul is all too relatable in verses 21 through 23. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I find myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is using the word law here differently in verse 21, where he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He uses the law in a couple different ways here in this passage. No longer talking about the Ten Commandments. He's saying that this is almost like a law in that it's something that always happens, like a law of gravity, right? So every time you throw a ball up in the air, it's a law that it's going to come right back down. He says, it's a, it's a law that whenever I want to do the right thing, it seems like every time temptation is right there to do the wrong thing. Right? We have good intentions and yet often get tripped up. Paul says that often happens. He says in his inner being, he wants to delight in the law of God. He wants to obey. And yet he sees in his members another law, almost like an anti-law that is constantly pushing against it. This war of, of sin against what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And maybe you feel like that. Now, if that will be your entire Christian experience, you may be tempted in this moment to say, well, then why not just throw in the towel? If one day I will ultimately be saved from all of this and that this struggle with sin will be constant throughout my entire life, then why not just throw up my hands and say, well, this is a free pass to just kind of sin. I have all Christians struggle with this. If Paul is saying this, if God knows this, then, well, why don't I just keep living in my sin? Maybe you'd say, you know what? I struggle with a particular sin that whenever I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, they're not struggling with that same sin. So does that kind of give me a right to just say, well, you know, this is, this is my battle. It will be, I'll indulge it kind of every now and then, but ultimately, no, it's not right. Paul says, no, you don't, don't live like that. Christ is purchased you and redeemed you for so much more through his blood. 
No, you don't have the ability to carry out the good desire within you, but Christ in you can. This is why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, what Paul is saying here is not an excuse to sin. It's a warning against sin to be reminded that you are living on a battlefield. Be prepared for the fight. And finally, what should a Christian do when they feel weary in their fight against sin? What should you do whenever you feel discouraged, when you feel like your strength is sapped, whenever you feel the crippling weight of guilt and the pain of failure again and again? If you don't want to drag yourself to church because you just don't feel like you belong there, when you don't want to open up your Bible because you know that the last time that you really thought about God was the moment that you felt like you broke His commands, what do you do? I think we cry out with the same question that Paul has in Romans 7 and cling to the immediate answer, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? from my sin? Who will save me from this cycle that feels impossible to break? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fourth fact we see in this passage is that Jesus Christ has already won the war with sin and will deliver you from it. In verse 24, Paul collapses in desperation. He says, I hate that I go into cities I talk about the goodness of God and I declare the power of God at work within us. I find myself falling into sin. I say God is enough and then I find myself being jealous. That I trust God's plan and yet I'm so anxious all the time. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Just thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's not enough accountability software you can download or verses that uh, you can, you know, do on your Fighterverse app or accountability partners that you can get. There's, There's not enough that you can do to save yourself, although those are great things. Ultimately, you must fall at the feet of Christ and cling to him and say, who will save me? a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Only God could turn a moment of heart-wrenching desperation into a song of praise that in shambles on your bedroom floor in the same moment that you would say, God, how could I have done this to you again? That you could say, Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've been declared holy and righteous and blameless that when God looks at me right now, he doesn't see me in a pit of wickedness, but as one who has been seated in heavenly places with Christ. Only God could take your moment of desperation at the edge of wickedness and say, remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done. So Paul confidently says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will deliver you from this body of death. This is a present reality and also a future promise that he says that one day 
Christ will completely deliver you from your sin. That one day, this is the doctrine of glorification, your body will be completely restored in which a sinful desire is completely foreign to who you are. It's actually impossible for you whenever you are glorified in the new heavens and new earth with Christ. He will deliver you from this body of death. So Paul here ends this passage, once again stating our reality before he goes into Romans 8. And Romans 8, we're going to be in for like the next five weeks, and it is going to just floor you with God's grace. He says, I, in myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now let me ask, what does Romans 7 mean for you? Well, I think the first application would be to those of you who are in this room and you're not a Christian. I think it's possible to even not be a Christian and not know that you are not a Christian. So yeah, you must ask the question, how does Paul describe a Christian here, even if there is sin in their life? Well, he says, ultimately, they delight in God's law. They want to do what God wants to do. That ultimately they're repentant. They name their sin before a holy God. They don't want to sin anymore. And what we see in the end of this passage is that a Christian realizes their only hope for a life of sin is loving Jesus, falling at Jesus' feet. So, so maybe this sermon today is bringing about some conviction in your life because you said, you know what? I recognize that there is sin in my life. And if so, that's a good thing. But maybe it's driven you more to self-improvement or behavior modification, and you aren't completely relying upon what Christ did on the cross in his death to completely pay for your sins and in his resurrection, trusting in him to give you life. Have you ever come to the point where you say, God, I recognize I am a sinner in need of grace. I trust in Christ's death and resurrection for my life. Maybe some of you need to make that decision today. If that's where you're at, and tell the person you came with, talk to one of our pastors, put it on your connect card, because this war against sin is one that Christ has already won, and that completely changes everything. If you're a Christian, I want you to know that you will never outgrow your dependence upon Christ. God has ordained the slow and gradual process of sanctification in such a way that you will always be dependent upon Him. But this also means that your daily battle against sin is a means of drawing near to God. How else will you know the depth of God's patience unless you require it? How else will you know God's steadfast love and mercy to those who are suffering unless you're continually coming to Him with your needs. You will not outgrow your dependence upon God. I think this passage also reveals to us that self-pity is not the same as clinging to Christ. Paul could have just stopped by saying, well, wretched man that I am, woe is me. But he doesn't stop there. The, the weariness that he feels leads him to ultimately worship God for who he is. And so don't end there. Don't end by just saying, well, I'm, I'm a worm. I'm worthless. Look at, look at my sin. Now let that lead you into worshiping God who saves. Our ongoing struggle with sin reveals the sufficiency of God's grace. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says that he said to me, speaking of Christ, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yes, 
Our battle with sin reveals our weakness, but it is so that we would behold the depth of God's grace. It is sufficient for us. The fact that Christ delivers us from sin is both a comfort and an encouragement to obey. As Olivia read earlier from 1 John 2, 1 through 3, that when John wrote 1 John, he said, my little children, talking to the church, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, which means he has atoned for our sins. He has absorbed the wrath of God not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That the fact that God has forgiven us is actually also a motivation to keep his commandments and obey. As a church, Romans 7 is a call to come alongside one another. I want you to think about the people in this room and realize that they have the exact same struggles that you do. That they need you and you need them that we need to come alongside one another, serve one another, live life with one another, to rely on one another because that's how God has created the church. One of the easiest ways that you can do that is by inviting somebody to lunch this afternoon, by joining a missional community group, by attending a Sunday gathering and showing up a little bit early to get to know the other people that are here, to introduce yourself to the person sitting in front of you or behind you to actually live this out. And I think finally, Romans 7 should break our heart for a world that doesn't know the answer to verse 24. If a world around us, if 1.6 million people in our city that we live alongside don't know the answer to this question, that should break our heart. Who will save me from this life of death? And people you know and love are self-medicating with substances or entertainment or relationships because they don't know the answer to that question, and you do. Who can save from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One invite, one hour over coffee, one intentional conversation, one text message from encouragement could open the door to someone knowing that God has sent Christ to save us in our wretched state. And in our battle with sin, we don't have to wonder who will save us. We know that we can praise God saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.